Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. So tonight and tomorrow is Yom Yerushalayim. The Talmud says something very curious. The Talmud says that the land of Israel is higher than any other place. The Talmud quotes a Pasuk. It's a Pasuk in Dvarim. The Pasuk says, if a person has a question and they need to go to consult with the Sanhedrin, the great Jewish court in Yerushalayim, v'kamta ve'alisa el hamakom, and you shall arise and ascend to the place, says the Talmud, whenever you travel to Israel, whenever you travel to Yerushalayim, you are ascending, you are going higher, because it is the highest place. And based on this Pasuk, the Talmud says that the place where the Beis Amigdash is, the Temple Mount, that's the highest place in the world. It's a very strange thing because the Temple Mount, the truth is, is not really such of a mount. Mount Everest is a lot higher. A lot of other places are much higher. It's a little hard to understand what the Talmud means by saying it's the highest place. So there are a number of different answers that are given, and the different answers are in different categories. But there's an approach that is given by the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer lived in Hungary about 200 years ago, and he gave the following approach, which is a very unique and original and important approach, and it goes like this. The earth is a sphere. So every place on earth is the highest if you hold it so that it's on top. What the Talmud means to say is that a person should hold the world, meaning a person should look at the world. A person's perspective on the world should be that Yerushalayim is the top of the sphere. It's not a geographical or geological phenomenon. It's a perspective. A person should look at the world as if Yerushalayim is at the very top. And that really is the essential job of a Jew, especially tonight and tomorrow, Yom Yerushalayim. Our mission on this day all the time, but especially Yom Yerushalayim, when we celebrate Jerusalem, is to hold the world in such a position so that our perspective is that Yerushalayim is on top, that it's the focus of our lives. It seems to me that one aspect of that is that whenever we are in Yerushalayim, we are closer to the Shekhinah, to God's presence. We are closer to a level of holiness and spirituality when we are in Yerushalayim, unlike any other place. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that it's a mitzvah to live in Israel, especially Yerushalayim, or even to visit as often as we are able, because we are able to come into closer contact with the Shekhinah, with God's presence. 
But here's an important lesson. Because keep in mind, after all, and I hope all of us have been to Yerushalayim, and if you have not yet been, please make plans to go as soon as it's possible, and if you have been, make plans to go back again. Yerushalayim is a city. It's a living, breathing, working city. And having Yerushalayim as the holiest place in the world teaches a lesson teaches us a lesson about what is holiness holiness is not something that is incompatible with normal daily life this is a subject that we've discussed before throughout the book of ayikra holiness goes along with normal life it's not separated from normal life a person is holy not when they separate from mundane life, but when they take mundane life and they elevate it. That is Jewish holiness. In Judaism, holiness is not esoteric. It's real. It's natural. It's part of this world. I've shared with some of you before this amazing part of a poem by Yehuda Amichai. Once I sat on the steps by a gate at David's tower, Migdal David in the old city of Yerushalayim. I placed my two heavy baskets at my side. A group of tourists was standing around their guide and I became their target marker. You see that man with the baskets? Well, just right of his head, and a little bit lower, there's an arch from the Roman period. I said to myself, says Amichai, redemption will come only if their guide tells them, you see that arch from the Roman period? It's not so important. But look a little bit to the left and a little bit to the side, there sits a man who's bought fruit and vegetables for his family. That's what's important about Yerushalayim. Here's one more story. I've told this to some of you before. So, uh, one of my favorite writers is a woman named Sarah Tuttle Singer. And this is a copy of her book. I hope that you can see it. It's called Jerusalem Drawn and Quartered. It is a great book. I recommend it highly. Order it, buy it, read it. Now, um, uh, Sarah is uh, uh, irre irreverent, uh, profane, maybe not to everybody's taste, uh, but I think she's a great writer. And uh, I find a lot of inspiration in the ideas that she mentions. So I want to tell you a story. This is a story that I would not be telling you if we were sitting around the table eating cholent during this year. So there's a benefit to everything. So the story is told by a woman who lives in the old city of Yerushalayim. You realize, of course, the old city is the holiest place in the world. 
the place of the base of Migdash, the place of the Kotel. It is also a city. There are people who live there. It's a little hard to imagine what it's like to live in one of the world's most popular tourist destinations. So this is a woman who lives there and she's telling the story. She says, I was at home. I was in the bathroom. And outside my window, I heard a tour group. They were on their way to the hotel. And I heard this woman say to her tour guide in a loud New York accent, wait, are there actually people living here? So, the woman telling the story says, I called down to her while I'm there on the toilet. And I said, yes, and we are privileged to live here in Hashem's backyard. And then she says, I flushed the toilet. I think I gave her a heart attack. So I hope that tonight and tomorrow you will find ways to celebrate the normalness and the specialness of Yerushalayim. This week's Parsha is the Parsha Bamidbar. Almost always, almost every year, this Parsha is read on the Shabbos before Shavuos, and so it serves as an introduction to Shavuos. So, if you want to look in your Chumash, if you have the stone Chumash on page 726, if you don't have it, that's okay. I'm only going to be reading a few words. One Pasek. Page 726, the very beginning of the book of the book of Bamidbar and the Parsha Bamidbar. The Torah says as follows. Hashem says to Moshe, they're in the desert, etc. He says to Moshe, take a census of the people. Su'u esrosh koladas b'nei Yisrael. Take a counting of the entire congregation of Israel. Make Do a census. Lemishpachosam, according to their families. Levesabosam, according to their father's house. Bemispar Shemos, by the number of their names. Kal Zachar, every male. Okay, why is it every male? I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because this counting was to come up with the number of soldiers that were available to fight in the wars. Okay, it's a question. Then the last word, legulgalosam. Legulgalosam. According to their gulgalosam. It's a strange word. One more time. Moshe, Take a census of the Jewish people according to their families, according to their names, everyone, according to their gulgulosam. So, it's a strange word, and there are a number of different opinions what this word means, what type of counting it is referring to. I want to share with something, something with you that is 
rather esoteric. And it comes from Maharam Mipano, a great Kabbalistic scholar who lived in the late 1500s. And he says that this word, Gulgulosam, refers to the concept of Gilgul, Gilgul Nishamos, which means transmigration of souls. Now, this is a concept that is not so popular within the wider Jewish world, but it is discussed within the Kabbalistic world and within the Hasidic world. And basically what it means is like this. Every person is a combination of a body and a soul. When a person is born, a soul and a shama is joined together to a body. And they are joined together while they are in this physical life. And then a person passes away, the body and soul separates. The body is returned to the earth. The soul continues to exist. What happens to that soul? According to this concept, sometimes Hashem will decide that soul, it needs to come back again into a different body. And it could be that a given person, their soul, it's not their first rodeo. It's not their first time around. It could be sometimes you hear someone use the phrase, he has an old soul. I'm not sure if that this is what they're referring to, but it could be that a person has an neshama that already went through a physical life in a different body, maybe once, maybe many times. Now, the fact is, we don't know any of this. None of this is visible. It is a uh, an assertion that is seriously held by uh, certain parts of the Jewish world, but it's not something that is knowable. But wh why would it happen to begin with? Well, the idea, explains Marampano, is as follows. A person lives their life and God has a certain mission in mind for that person. And it could be that a person finishes their life for whatever reason and is laid to rest and that neshama did not did not or did not have the opportunity or for whatever reason did not fulfill their mission and so god might decide this soul needs to come back this this soul has something it still needs to accomplish this soul has something it needs to fix it needs to repair and so i'm going to bring it back into a new body i'm going to transmigrate the soul into a new body, that's called Gilgul Neshamos. And so what Moshe is saying, what the Torah is saying is that when Moshe counted the Jewish people, he looked at every single person and through his powers of prophecy, he was able to see not only the person, the physical person, the body and soul in front of him, he was also able to see how many Gilgulim, there had been and there would be in the future for each individual. Okay, so maybe that's the understanding of this word, legil galosam, and maybe that's the type of counting that it refers to. Again, I mentioned to you that uh, it is a concept that is discussed within certain Jewish sources, not widespread, but the question is, you can't see it. You can't know for sure. I mean, I've heard people who say 
about themselves or about a certain person. That person is a Gilgul of David Melech. Okay, maybe they are a prophet and they know such a thing. I don't know if such a thing is knowable. So if it's not knowable and does not seem to have any practical consequence, what does it mean for us? What, what does it teach us? So I want to share with you something from Rabbi Yisachar Frand. And it's something that I think can become part of our toolbox in confronting the challenges that we face in life. So unfortunately, there are many occasions in life where we do not understand how could such a thing happen? Why should such a tragedy befall such a good person? Why is it happening? And I don't have a reason for you. I don't have an answer for you. So please don't expect one because God set up the world in a way that we do not have the answers to those questions. However, it is possible that a partial understanding might be the perspective that what I am seeing is not the full picture because there was some, maybe something before and there will maybe be something after. And so I'm looking at something and I'm evaluating it. Of course, I have the right to evaluate it, but I may not be seeing the full story. There's no way to know that this, in fact, is part of an answer or a truth in any given circumstance. But as a concept, it is possible. And the Marami Pano gives an amazing example of this. So listen to this example. There's a story in the Talmud. Actually, this story is immortalized in one of the kinos that we say on Tisha B'Av because it concerns a terrible event that happened around the time of the destruction of the second temple, the Beis HaMikdash. The Talmud tells the story that there was a, a man, Rabbi Yishmol ben, ben Elisha, who was a Kohen, whose ancestors were Kohanim Gedolim, the high priest, came from great aristocracy, and this man had a son and a daughter. And Nebuch, when the Romans captured Jerusalem, the son and the daughter were taken as slaves and they were sold to two different masters, each of whom separately brought their slave back to Rome. One day it happened, these two slave owners met up with each other and each one was bragging about how beautiful their slave was. And they had the idea, you have a, a boy slave and I have a girl slave and they're so beautiful, let's bring them together and mate them and their children will certainly be beautiful. And so they each took their slave 
and they forced them into a room that was completely dark and left them there overnight. Of course, neither the boy or the girl, the young man or the young woman had any idea who was on the other side of the room. It was completely dark. Each of them sat in opposite corners of the room and they cried to themselves. And the boy cried to himself and said, I'm a Kohen. There are certain laws and rules about who I am allowed to marry and not allowed to marry. How can I be forced to be together with a woman? I don't know who she is. I don't know if it's permissible. I can't do it. And the young woman in her corner was crying to herself. And she was saying, I'm the daughter of a Kohen. I'm the descendant of a Kohen Gadol, a high priest. How can I be married to a person I don't even know if, who he is? I don't know if he's Jewish. I don't know what his uh, genealogy is. How is it possible? And they each cried in their own corner the entire night. When the dawn broke, they recognized each other. They recognized that they were brother and sister. And they embraced each other. And they cried on each other's shoulders at the fate that had befallen them. And they died in each other's arms. And the Talmud says concerning this incident, the prophet Yermio, when he wrote the book of Echel, Lamentations, he wrote these words, Eini, Eini, Yarda, Dima. My eye, my eye sheds tears. Says the Gemara, why is the word any, my eye, why is it double? It's double because it refers to the tears of two people. The tears of the young man and the tears of the young woman. That's the narrative in the Talmud. We recall that in one of the Kinos on Tisha B'av, A tragic individual story of the destruction of the Second Temple. How could such a tragedy occur? How could it occur to the children of such a great man, Rabbi Yishmael? How could such a horrible thing to happen to such wonderful people? Now, obviously, we do not know the answer to that. But the Marami Pano offers the following suggestion based on this concept. He said, what he says is unbelievable. He says, this young man and this young woman were each the Gilgal. The young man was the Gilgal of an, a young man who lived centuries before named Amnon. And the young woman was a Gilgal of a young woman who lived centuries before whose name was Tamar. Now, Amnon and Tamar, this is a well-known, tragic story in Tanakh, in the book of Shmuel. Amnon and Tamar were both children of David Amela, King David, but from different mothers. They were half-siblings. And Amnon developed a 
temptation and a lust for Tamar and he did a terrible, terrible sin and he forcibly had relations with her. A terrible tragedy that occurred. Says the Maramipano, what God decided is that after Amnon and Tamar had passed away, their physical lives came to an end and their neshamos returned to Shemayim, God wanted to arrange that there would be an opportunity for those two souls to be in a position where they might be tempted to an illicit sexual relationship, but they would withstand at this time. And so their neshamos were brought back in a gilgal of different people, this young man and this young woman, who were likewise, they were full siblings, not exactly the same, but in a situation where they could have been tempted to an illicit sexual relationship and they withstood it. So that when they passed away, they had cleansed the sin that had been committed by their earlier Gilgal. Okay? There's no way to know. It's an incredible insight of Marami Pano. But the Chavetz Chaim says as follows. There is a Pasuk in Tehillim. The Pasuk says, Mishpete Hashem emes tzadku yachtav. The laws of God are true. Together, they are just. Mishpete Hashem emes. The laws of God are true. Tzadku yachtav. They are just when they are together. What does that mean? Together, they are just. The Chavetz Chaim explains, if you just look simply at this situation and you try to evaluate it, you will not see the justice that we assume God uses to run the world. It's only when you have a wider view, when you're able to see from before this world and after this life, that is when there is a full picture of God's true justice. I don't know. It's not within my tradition. It is not something that is knowable to us. But it is perhaps a concept that does legitimately exist within Judaism that may be a perspective in how we view certain things that happen in life. Okay. So, the parsha of Bamidbar is largely, it, there's the census of the Jewish people, and it's largely about the encampment of the Jewish people in the desert, how the Jewish people camped in the desert. So, I wish I had a fancier way to do it, but, but I don't. So, I'm going to try to hold this up to you to see if you can... I don't know if you can see it. I'm not sure. I wish you could. So, but what the diagram shows is, the diagram shows the Mishkan is in the middle. The Levi, the Kohanim and the Levium are 
encamped on the four sides of the Mishkan, and the 12 tribes are arranged in a box pattern with three tribes on all four sides, creating an encampment that is one large square. That is the diagram that is being described in our Parsha of how the Jewish people camped in the desert. Okay. So, that's how they camped. But we know, during the 40 years in the desert, they camped, but they also traveled. They marched. So, we know how they camped. We have the diagram. But how did they march? So, there are two opinions. One opinion says they marched in a straight line. They formed a column, which makes sense. If you're going to march, there could be mountains and valleys. It might be a, a path with a, a certain uh, maximum width. So, you break camp and you march in a, in a column, in a straight line. That's one opinion. But there's another opinion based on the Talmud Yerushalmi that says they marched in the formation of a square. In other words, they kept this formation and they just moved forward. Now, that's odd. If you just think about just the, the practicality of it, first of all, it seems unwieldy. I guess it makes it easier to keep your place if you always stay in the same relative position, but it just sounds like such a strange, counterintuitive way to move through a desert, to move an entire people through a desert. So I'd like to suggest to you that we can understand this opinion by asking another question. And this is a question that was asked, the Medrash tells us, by Moshe. And anybody who has children can understand Moshe asking this question. God commands Moshe how the camp is going to be set up. These three tribes here, 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 surrounding the Mishkan, one big square. Moshe, the Medrash says, Moshe asks God, wait a second, that's not going to work. Because everybody's going to, going to complain. I don't want to be on the left side. I want to be on the right side. I don't want to be on the middle. I want to be on the end. How's it going to work? You know, Jewish people, wherever you tell them to go. No, I don't want to go there. I want to go the other way. So Hashem gives the following answer. Hashem says, they will recognize their place. Because the arrangement that I am now commanding you, God says to Moshe, is not a new arrangement. The 12 tribes, of course, come from the 12 sons of Yaakov, Jacob, the patriarch, our forefather Yaakov. Remember the end of the book of Bereshus? Yaakov died in Egypt and his sons carried his body back to Israel to be buried in Hebron. When his sons carried Yaakov's body back to Israel to be buried, this was the order 
in which the twelve sons stood around his casket as they carried it. So there was no reason for the tribes to complain when Moshe commanded them God's command how they were to camp in the desert. It was the same orientation they were already used to by the tradition of which son had stood in which spot carrying their father Yaakov to be buried. It was a pre-existing order. This same setup, by the way, was the scene at Sinai which we commemorate on Shavuos. Because you will notice, as we read the Psukim on the first day of Shavuos, and even though we're not in Shul, but we should read the Torah reading to, to study it, it was not theater-style seating at Sinai. The Jewish people surrounded Mount Sinai on all sides, and Hashem spoke from the midst, from the middle with the Jewish people surrounding. And that same pattern, we continue till this very day. Well, not this very day, but hopefully very soon, meaning in shul. In shul, in every shul, the bima, the place from which the Torah is read, is in the middle like the Mishkan was in the middle, like Yaakov's body was in the middle with the entire Jewish people arranged around it. Why? Why, are, why is this pattern repeated so many times throughout all of Jewish history? Because it is absolutely essential that Torah is the focal point of our lives. That our life revolves around Torah and Torah is in the center. Yaakov was the source of Torah values for his family. Mount Sinai was the source of Torah for Klal Yisrael, for the Jewish people. Through the desert, the Mishkan <coughs> was the source of Torah for the Jewish people. In Shul, the Bima, from where we read the Torah. This is the focal point for our community, the focal point for our family, the focal point as a people of our lives. It's a pattern that starts at the beginning of our history and continues for all time. We revolve around Torah. We revolve around its laws. We revolve around its values, we revolve around its reflection of God. And that's why, they, that's why they walked through the desert in this strange, counterintuitive formation, so that there would be an unbroken history of Torah at the center of Jewish life. As I mentioned to you before, this parsha is almost always read on the Shabbos before Shavuos and serves as an introduction to Shavuos. 
for many reasons, but one of them is that our Parsha contains the essential meaning of Shavuos. The essential meaning of Shavuos. This dramatic encounter between God and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai is not a one-time event. It is one dramatic moment of an ongoing motif of Torah as the focal point in our lives. And for that reason, there's a critical detail in our Parsha. If you take a look, please, on page 732, in the Stone Chumash, page 732, chapter Bez, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 2, Pasuk number 1, Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, Ish al diglo, each person, each group should have its own flag. Degel, each person should have its own flag. Here in the Parsha, the Torah describes how each three tribes, I told you there were three tribes on each of the four sides of this box. Each three tribe group had, group had its own flag. Also, each individual tribe had their own individual flag. And what was on the flag what was, was, a representa was a representation of what made that group or that tribe special. Because each group was proud of who they were and they were proud of where they were. The group on the east side was proud to be able to say, our mission is the east side. And likewise, west and north and south. And each tribe also, this is my mission. This is what is special about me. And I'm proud of it. I want everyone to see it. I want to brag about it. Shavuos is about much more than just receiving the commandments. And it's even about more than learning the Torah and the commandments. It's also about pride in performing the commandments. It's about enthusiasm and love in performing the commandments and in studying the Torah. I want everyone to see my flag. I want everyone to see that I am proud that this is my mitzvah. This is my mission. This is my spot and this is my role. I'm proud of that. And that is an attitude we need to try to develop on Shavuos. I want to finish with this story. I've told it to some of you before. It's an incredible story. And it holds an important lesson for all of us relating to Shavuos. It's a story told by Rabbi Yechiel Spiro in his book, Touched by a Story. There was a Jewish camp for boys. Very good camp. And there was a boy, his name was Shaul, who wanted to come to the camp. Shoal was a very special child, but he was also a boy with special needs. 
it was clear to Shaul's parents that he had a very a very holy neshama from the time that he was born there were long periods of time where Shaul would not talk or would not even move until finally he turned 6 years old something miraculous happened he started talking and he didn't stop after that and by the time he was 13 his parents thought maybe maybe it would be possible realistic for Shoal to go to a camp together with so-called regular boys and they found this camp and the director met Shoal was very impressed with him recognized that it was unique features but agreed to take Shaul on the condition that Shaul would come with a shadow, someone who was older, who knows him, who would stay with him all the time, make sure that he was okay. And there was another boy, Ellie, who Shaul know, knew, and the two of them came together. So Shaul comes to camp, and the boys in the bunk, they recognize that he's not the same as everyone else, does not act the same as everyone else, but they try to treat him with respect, with sensitivity, a little more, a little less. But it's going okay. It's going okay. And every day in the morning at camp, they would get up and they'll go to davening, their prayers. And every day, Shaul was the first person in the room for davening. He was the first person ready for prayers. And as they were davening, he would hold open his sitter. He was able to hold open the sitter. He could follow which page they were up to. And before they would reach the Amidah, the Shemona Esrei, every day, Shaul would motion to his friend Eli and he would point in the Siddur later on in the Amidah to the paragraph Yala Viyavo. Yala Viyavo is the paragraph that we include in the Amidah on Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the Jewish month. Sunday is Rosh Chodesh. So Saturday night and Sunday when we say the Amidah, we will include the paragraph of Yala Viyavo. It is a prayer that is said in honor of Rosh Chodesh as well as on other holidays. But let's just leave Rosh Chodesh for now. So, Shaul was very excited to say this prayer. So every day before the Amidah, he would motion to Eli and, and, and open to the page and would point. He didn't want to talk because we try not to talk right before the Amidah, but he would indicate, do we say Yala Vievo today? And Eli would shake his head. No, because, because it was not Rosh Chodesh. This happened every day, day after day. Same thing. Everyone is watching this. Everyone sees it. Everyone is expecting it. Same thing every day. No change. Until finally, it was Rosh Chodesh. And now, all the boys are watching because they know what's going to happen. They know the scene. 
and they know exactly how it's going to unfold. So just like every other day, as they're about to reach the Amidah, Shaul motions to Eli, to Yalaviyavo. Eli, do we say Yalaviyavo? And this day, Eli says, yes, we say it. And Shaul raises his hands in victory like he had just won a marathon, like the biggest celebration in his life. The excitement to be able to say Yala Vievo. To have a sense of joy and celebration to be able to say a certain prayer. That's something we need to learn from. That's something we need to aspire to. And Shavuos is the time to do it. My friends, I wish it for you. I wish it for me. I want to wish you all a wonderful evening, a great Shabbos, we will not be meeting together in this format until uh, the Thursday night after Shavuos, but we will have other learning opportunities between now and Shavuos, and I look forward to that with you. Have a great night and a great Shabbos. Good night.